Chapter 43 People say the dead aren't safe in their tombs. Even the burial sites, even the pyres are rifled for remains. Apuleius, the Golden Ass, circa 158 CE. Say, here's an idea for Babette's ashes, I call down from atop Salazar's elevated bed in the civic apartments. October rain beats against steamy windows, and near the ceiling, Zoya's cigarette smoke spreads out in a dense fog. She sits before the mirror, Capri 120 between purple-tinted lips as quick fingers twist her dreadlocks. His own hair bundled under a black beret, Salazar sits at my professor's former piano. He gazes up at me, final notes of a Kate Bush song fading as scuffed lineman's boots press the sustain pedal. What's that? I hop off his bed and snap plastic food cutlery scattered across the floor. Check this. Babette always loved visiting Yakima, where she was born. Some of the best times we enjoyed were at the local symphony. I want to drive out there again, maybe catch a classical music performance at the Capitol Theater, then scatter her remains on the railroad tracks. What do you think? Salazar nods. Seems appropriate. Zoya exhales smoke through her nose and flicks ash into a glass jar on top of the stereo speakers. Is this something you gotta do alone? I grin. Absolutely not. We should plan a trip together. How about next month? My friends voice their agreement, and Salazar strikes up a jaunty musical improvisation, fingers skipping gaily across the keyboard. On the evening of November 7th, I park my Volkswagen bus across Burnside from the Civic and holler up through Zoya's window. She lets me in, and we saunter down befouled hallways to her apartment. Salazar is nowhere around. Are you guys ready for tomorrow? I ask. Let's get an earlier start. Like, late morning, maybe? Yakima is a good three hours away or more. Oh, almost. Sal probably isn't. He's been gone since the afternoon. What about you? Got everything set? Yeah, pretty much. I didn't bother with hotel reservations. We don't need them. It's always deserted this time of year. Plus, I don't know what performances are at the theater right now. So, sorry my plans are a little haphazard. I did remember the guest of honor, though. This is a trip 50% of Babette wouldn't want to miss. Zoya runs a finger across my forehead. What's that on your face? You play in a sandbox or something? I laugh. Oh no, today was my last shift at the concrete plant down in Clackamas. I swear, that industrial temp company gives me the shittiest jobs. Anyway, I could really use a shower to get this grit off. Do you have clean towels? Zoya nods. There's one hanging on the wall. Thanks, I just need a quick rinse. In the bathroom, I undress and lay my clothes on the toilet seat. Empty beer cans, fast food containers, and crusty hair dye jars cover almost every surface. I peer inside the shower stall. It is crammed with dirty dishes and pans. Once the water is hot enough, I step inside. Something pricks my toe. I bend down and lift a crumpled bath mat. The curved edge of a Cuisinart blade glitters up at me. God damn! What? Comes Zoya's muffled voice through the door. I just found your food processor. It almost processed me. Oh, sorry. The sink plugged up, so I've been doing dishes in there. Her voice continues, but now the stereo outside blares and everything else is drowned out. Water flows over my head in a warm torrent. 
Once every particle of sand is scrubbed from behind my ears, I shut off the faucet and fumble along a wall for the towel. Excited voices now chatter, and music reverberates with a staccato beat. Dried and dressed, I open the door, but within inches it jams. Pushing hard, a large cardboard box slides away with some effort. The perpetual odor of mold mixes with something sweet I can't identify. Every square foot is now occupied with gutterpunks who dangle legs off the elevated bed and hoist 40-ounce bottles of Pabst. Zoya pushes her way through. Look at this! Sal brought home a ton of chocolate his friends dumpstered tonight from the industrial area. She points at the box, which is filled with small brown bricks. I reach inside and sniff one, then cautiously nibble a corner. What do you think? Okay, a little dry though. It's cherry flavored. How odd. Quite a score. Hey, oh Sal. Hey Sal, I shout. What's that? We still on for Yakima tomorrow? Now Salazar is beside me, eyes excited. Oh yeah, absolutely. But first, who is up for croquet? He lifts a wooden mallet high, and the gutter punks cheer. Their enthusiasm is contagious. We march outside, occupying nearby Cooch Park with nocturnal merriment. Our challenging course leads across concrete, gravel, grass, and even incorporates children's playground equipment. Around midnight, a police cruiser briefly spotlights us, but the officers merely laugh and drive away. Hours into the early morning, our last ball rolls beneath the final wicket. Weary and cold, we call it quits. Around 9 a.m., Zoya's alarm sounds, and I wake with a start. We lie curled in her nest, thick blankets draped across our bodies. She reaches out, presses a button, and the racket ceases. I rub my eyes. What time is it? Time to sleep more. She strokes my arm. Gotta get moving. I can't believe we stayed up so late. Zoya yawns. Don't worry about it. Come on, you said yourself this wasn't planned well. Take some time. Find out when there's a good symphony performance, and we'll go then. You're not on a schedule. Babette won't get any more ashy. True, you're right. I gotta move my bus, though. Parking enforcement around here really nails you without a zone permit. Okay. Hurry back where Warm lives. It's freezy out there. I dismount the bed and hurriedly pull on clothes. A single pale ray penetrates her tightly drawn blinds. Shivering, I exit into the cold sunlight. My untied bootlaces skitter over the concrete sidewalk down Burnside, then across on 19th Street. Just a block up, keys are jingling in my hand when I pause. This is too far. Last night I found a closer spot. After turning back and forth in confused stupor, realization finally sinks in. Just across from the car wash lot, a silver Volvo station wagon sits where my blue Volkswagen should be. Back inside the apartment, I locate Zoya's phone book amidst a pile of debris on the floor. Zoya stirs and lifts the blankets as I dial her bedside phone. Come here. What's going on? My bus is gone. I gotta find out what tow company the city contracts with. I sure hope... Oh, hold on. Hello? I'm calling to see if you towed an 84 Vanagon last night, or this morning, from 19th Street downtown, just off Burnside? No? Would any other outfits move vehicles in that area? Really? Well, that's lame. Okay, thanks for the info then. I place the receiver down and meet Zoya's concerned gaze. 
Shit. My bus wasn't towed. They recommended filing a police report. It must have been stolen. She stretches and blinks, clumps of mascara caught in her dark eyelashes. Damn, Ross. I'm so sorry. That's awful. You were ready for that trip, too. Was all your stuff in there? Oh my god! Was she in there? Yeah. Talk about bad timing. Pow. Zoya mimes a gun to her head with two fingers, then pulls a robe around her naked body. She heads toward the bathroom as I punch in numbers for the police non-emergency line. Upon her return, several minutes later, I lean glumly against the elevated bed. She envelops me in a sleepy embrace. I squeeze back. The cops took a brief report on the phone. They'll send an officer over for additional details at my place. Not until noon, though. You should sleep more. I'll take a bus home, then call later and let you know what's up, okay? All right. Tell me if there's anything I can do. She climbs back into bed and closes her eyes. I pull the covers up, kissing each smooth cheek. Zoya smiles faintly as I turn and leave. One bus transfer later, I step off along Hawthorne Boulevard, then walk south toward Grant Street. A cold breeze swirls around my ears. Unlike Babette's posh locale, I now live in a working-class neighborhood that boasts unkempt lawns and sidewalk recycling bins full of empty beer bottles. The two-story house I share with three others sits halfway down the block, its driveway empty. My roommates are all at work. Inside, I hang my jacket on a wooden rack and set water for tea boiling in the kitchen. A framed Canadian National Railroad print adorns one wall, and an orange-enameled pot rests by the stove. I enter my bedroom and sit down behind Babette's writing desk. A long bookshelf occupies the far end, filled with favorites from her library. John Henneage Jesse, Margaret Atwood, Emily Carr, and Hilaire Belloc. Nineteen thick volumes of Elysée Recluse, The Earth and Its Inhabitants, take up an entire lower level. Napoleon III's bust glares sternly from the windowsill, overlooking General Bonafont's old wooden chest, now filled with my boots. Almost two hours later, a knock sounds at the front door. I open it and see a uniformed policeman, medium height and trim, his cheeks pink from the cold. Good afternoon, I'm Officer Helzer. Are you the one whose vehicle was stolen? Yeah, that's me. Would you like to come in? Thanks. He steps past me, eyes roving about. They come back and rest on me. So, this won't take long. We just need some details verified. I have your plate number, last known location, time of disappearance, and insurance information. Is that all correct? I look over his paperwork. Yeah, that's right. Did you make sure it wasn't just down another block? Maybe a friend borrowed it? Unlikely. Nobody else has keys. I did look around, but it was definitely on 19th Street last night. Were there any items of value in your vehicle? Any weapons? I hesitate. The officer rolls his eyes. Look, guy, if you stashed your dime bag there, I really don't want to know. Oh, no, not like that. No weapons either. Well, this probably sounds a little weird. I left an urn in the back, filled with the ashes of a dead friend. His countenance clears. Oh, that is something. He scribbles in a small notebook. Well, I'll file this and alert you if anything turns up. Here's my card. Please call if you can think of anything else that could be helpful. Have a good day. He turns and lets himself out. I return to my room and sag behind the writing desk again. My old Macintosh sits on top now instead of a typewriter. 
Beside it is a small framed portrait of young Babette in drag, round-faced above her haphazard bosom. I take a final sip of thoroughly cold chai tea and settle back with a collection of essays by Michel de Montaigne. Oh, he was an absolute genius, I can still hear my professor declare, her enthusiasm palpable even after death. Do you know, Montaigne wrote that one of life's greatest joys is not achieving political power or sex with some beautiful lover, but a satisfying bowel movement? I have scarcely finished the first chapter before another knock sounds. I answer the door and see Officer Helzer again. He steps inside, grinning widely. So, new situation for me here. I talked on the radio with some people down at the station about your theft, and it turns out, under Oregon law, remains of a deceased individual retain many civil rights, even post-cremation. Therefore, my question is, would you like to file a kidnapping report? My jaw drops. Yes, absolutely. The officer takes out his notebook. All right, what was the name of the deceased? Well, that's complicated. My friend underwent sex reassignment and became known as Babette or Elizabeth Ellsworth. Before that, she was Albert. Sorry, it's a little convoluted. I believe her official name at death was A.J. Bobby Ellsworth. Plus, she sometimes used the last name Bonifant. The policeman's pen stops. Could you spell that? B-O-N-N-E-F-O-N-T. Do you know her date of birth? October 22nd, 1928. And when did this sex change take place? 1994. The notebook snaps shut. All right, that should be enough information for now. I'll let you know if we get any leads. He looks me over with a slight smile. Sounds like a very interesting person, your friend. Bye now. The door closes behind him. Back in my room, I pick up the old drag portrait and stare incredulously. Well, Babette, talk about being kidnapped often enough, it might actually happen again. Bet you didn't see that one coming. The image stares silently back at me through cat's eye glasses, pudgy cheek and serious. Ten days later, an impound yard in northwest Portland calls. My Volkswagen turned up abandoned, illegally parked just blocks from the Civic Apartments. Anxiously, I catch a bus down to their lot and reluctantly pay $75 for its release. An attendant in stained coveralls leads me through a barbed wire fence where rows of vehicles are lined up on gravel. There, between a Mazda with broken headlights and an early 80s Celica, sits my Vanagon. I circle it cautiously, examining the exterior. There are no new dents or obvious damage. I roll open the side door. Empty Tecate beer cans slide out with a clatter. The front passenger seat is shoved forward, a large gap underneath where the 12-volt battery formerly resided. I curse with annoyance. So much for driving home now. My rearview mirror is also missing, but toward the rear, Babette's urn rests under a seat. I pull it toward me and snap the lid open. Empty. Completely empty. Not so much as a speck of ash. The residual smell of cheap alcohol blows away as chilly wind gusts through the open door. I throw my head back and can't help but laugh. Babette's final journey was never one I could select, for her soul bore no more appropriate epitaph than a question mark.
This is the best farewell, and wouldn't she be delighted? My professor's travels, endless now, free to continue, without conclusion. Half of her remains in Canada, yes, but the other portion? Everywhere, and nowhere. A life too expansive for confines of nationality and religion, even gender, has burst out into the unknown. One final mystery, even here. It couldn't be more perfect.